I'm walking down a street in Istanbul with two other friends from the state. We are all sweating in the August heat. I'm wearing a loose-fitting dress, letting my breasts hang freely over my belly, and my face is unadorned with makeup. If you had met me a week prior, you would have asked me if I was okay. But up until that sweltering week in Istanbul, I had worn makeup every day for the past eight years of my life. Ever since Dana Marie Jones gave me NYC brand mascara for Christmas, I have always had my makeup done. My mom didn't want me to wear it because she thought 14-year-olds were too young, but sorry, Karen. That didn't stop me from putting it on when I got to school. My girlfriends would dominate one of the bathrooms, and we would begin to practice a beauty ritual that I would continue for the rest of my life. Before the years of YouTube, we would splay out magazines and learn how to do our mascara, glittery shadow, and I would soon perfect the cat eye makeup. But part of the ritual was also the complaining. We would lament about wanting to be skinnier, prettier, having longer hair, different colored eyes. Even our elbows weren't good enough. It was cool to complain. And as we got older, the complaints became internalized. Our hateful thoughts would fog up our bathroom mirrors as we got ready for work. Ever since then, I have always had makeup on. It made me feel pretty, no matter how poorly I applied it, especially my eyes. See, I'm a pale human, and if I don't wear mascara, it looks like I don't have lashes at all. I look like an albino who's contracted the flu when I'm not wearing lashes. And I, I got so dependent on it, I couldn't leave my room without it. I would put it on before having breakfast with my family, or going to the gym, or refuse to wash it off if I was staying over at a boyfriend's place. It was better to wake up with smudged mascara around my eyes looking like a sleepy raccoon rather than take it off. No one could see me without it. I wasn't pretty. It was too exposing and vulnerable. I knew I was more than my looks, but being desirable was such a driving force for me. If I walked around without makeup, people might reconsider my attractiveness and my overall value. Oh. But if you think not wearing makeup was the only body image issue I have, then you, my generous audience, are very wrong. Around the time I was given my first tube of mascara, I started to become insecure about my weight. See, I've always struggled with the thought of my weight. I was raised in a culture that denied white women having curves. Well, big boobs were encouraged, but as long as your waist size wasn't the same circumference, Perky curves, yoga butt were okay if they didn't spill over your jeans. And to be honest, it's best if you didn't have thighs at all. We wanted to be as thin as eight-year-olds who had just gone through a famine. We don't want to take up too much space. So as a girl growing up in the 90s, the images of tight-abbed Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera filled magazine covers and commercials. Then Kate Moss's notorious line of nothing ever tastes like skinny feels echoed through my young, impressionable mind throughout high school and college. It's not any better now, just younger influencers. But from age 15 to this morning, there hasn't been a day where I haven't thought about, if not obsessed, over my weight. Because you see, girls got curves, especially an ass. I'm not bragging or looking for pity. It's just a statement. It's big enough to have its own gravitational pull and unfortunately attracts some of the most deplorable men. But I've always been insecure about it. When that thigh gap trend came around, I remember sitting at my kitchen table. I looked down at my thighs that were splayed over the chair and thought, no ant can pass through these, sitting or standing. I would wear a belt around my waist under my clothes to prevent me from overeating, which would often cut off airflow. Baggy clothes made me look bigger, so I wore tight-fitting tops and pants that were often restrictive in movement, but I looked thinner. Every part of me is annoyed that I'm even talking about this. Because from the outside, I'm probably a completely normal-looking human. What do I have to complain about? But there hasn't been a day of my post-puberty brain where these hateful thoughts haven't swarmed my mind. 
It was worse when I got into college. The yo-yoing between wanting to be skinny, but also taking advantage of all the free pizza on campus. I felt like I was walking on a fence of barbed wire and could fall into the camp of overeating or anorexia. Because the stress and fear of overeating would typically lead me to overeat. And this psychological cycle of shame would begin. God, you have no self-control. You're going to get fat. Don't you see how big your stomach is getting? No one's ever going to want to fuck you. You don't have to eat. Just gnaw on a cucumber. And with all of that pressure on myself, I would wake up elbow deep in a box of Lucky Charms or be polishing off the remains of a carton of ice cream. And then I would guilt and guilt and guilt. Okay, not today. You can be strong today. Don't eat any sugar. You can just eat really little. Maybe just smoothies. Do you even have to eat dinner? And then a friend would get an order of cheesy fries and I'd polish off half of it. I do want to say I've never actually had a severe eating disorder. But disordered eating? You bet. I started seeing all food as being bad, not just unhealthy food. And my friends started turning into enablers. You can't hang out with this group because they love ordering cake after dinner. And don't go out with so-and-so because they love getting noodles and ice cream. So the people in my life started getting labels as intense as the nutritional facts on a box of Pop-Tarts. And sometimes I would just stare at thin women and wonder, what the fuck is your secret? Do they just not eat? Is that what I have to do? This constant pick, 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 picking at my body is so normalized, I didn't even realize I was doing harm to myself. It wasn't until I found myself dripping in the Istanbul heat with makeup smudged along my face and my tight clothes soaking up sweat that I started to see that I was in pain. Today on the episode, we will talk about healing, how travel has helped restore our minds and bodies. Sometimes home prevents us from seeing that we are in pain or keeps ripping the band-aid off. Trekking can have regenerative properties and can bring us closer to the healing that we need with or without all the eat, pray, love. We'll talk to travelers who have found ways to identify their physical and mental inflammations and we will dissect what exactly is self-love. I'm Adrian Bain, and this is Strangers Abroad. Here we go. I never thought that there was anything wrong with my thinking. All of my girlfriends in high school and college would say the same things. And in my own home, you bet. I grew up hearing negative things from all of my older female relatives, as subtle as the spices they would use to flavor our boiled vegetables. My mother would complain about her body. My grandmother told me that eating too many crackers would make me fat. My other grandmother got a nose job. No woman in my family loved their bodies. Although they always told me and my sisters that we were beautiful, that tidal wave of complaints would pummel those few positive messages, like a helpless fisherman's boat caught at storm. So this was just normal, if not encouraged. I didn't think there was anything wrong until I went abroad. And I'm not the only one who discovers that I had a problem until I left home. Sarah, from Obligatory Traveler, has always had some health issues. When she was in her 20s, she developed lupus, an autoimmune disorder. She had a handle on that, though. But it wasn't until she was vacationing in Belize with her husband, trying to climb up some steep stairs to go ziplining, that she found it hard to breathe. We sort of started traveling, I guess, when I first got married. We had started doing some trips in other countries and we did Panama and we did Costa Rica and just loved being somewhere different. And I think that was pretty much where the travel bug really caught us. And when we started to look into really making travel a priority and we went on a trip to Belize 
and we decided the one day to go zip lining and cave tubing. For the zip line, you kind of had to walk up all of these stairs to get to the very first launch point. And we're walking up the stairs and about halfway through, I started getting very out of breath. And it was kind of crazy and I had to stop. I couldn't walk up the stairs anymore and I just had to catch my breath. And it seemed strange because I exercised and worked out. So it didn't seem normal that I should get so out of breath walking up these stairs. But I had had kind of a chest cold before we went on the trip and kind of blamed it on that and got up the rest of the stairs. The rest of the trip, I didn't have any issues. And after that, I didn't have any issues. So I kind of just thought, eh, just one of those things. The next trip that we took right after that, we went to Colorado. And of course, you're in Colorado, so you have to go hiking in a mountain because that's what you do. So I started hiking up the mountain that we went to, and I couldn't get 20 steps without having to stop. I just couldn't breathe. It was very alarming. It just seemed like something was wrong. So we got up the mountain. It took a ton of time. And once we started going back down, I was fine. I didn't have any issues for the rest of the day. But I already have lupus, so I see a rheumatologist all of the time. And my next appointment after the Colorado trip, I told her what was going on and that something just didn't seem right. I had now had these two instances while traveling where I was kind of climbing up something and couldn't breathe. And I didn't have any issues at home during that time doing anything, but while I traveled, these two things happened. And thankfully to her, she was like right on the ball. And she said, all right, we're just going to send you for a whole bunch of tests. Uh, We'll just test everything and see what's going on. But the very first thing that they did was an echo of my heart. And I got a call the weekend after the echo. And she called me up while I was at work and said, you have to go to the hospital, a hospital in Philadelphia, the only one that has this machine that does this really particular test because we found all this pressure on your heart during the echo. And so you have to go and get a test right away. So that was pretty alarming. I had to leave work right then. had to go over into Philadelphia to the one hospital that did this test. And they did a bunch more tests and found out that I had something called pulmonary hypertension, which is a very rare autoimmune disorder that causes pressure to build up in the arteries between your heart and lungs. So after that, we kind of got the ball rolling. Um, I had to get my heart catheterized just to confirm it because that's the only way you confirm the diagnosis. And then after that, I just started doing treatment. But it was sort of just crazy in that a lot of people don't get diagnosed until years after this has started because they're usually not doing, they're not hiking mountains, they're not going zip lining in Belize. So it was pretty much that travel literally saved my life because I'm only in the early stages, whereas most people don't get diagnosed until they, a lot of the times are in heart failure because they don't get symptoms until it's really progressed and they're walking upstairs at home and they can't breathe. But Sarah is used to having to work around her body. She has lupus, a chronic autoimmune disease. It's when your immune system starts to attack healthy tissues instead of infections and can cause pain in any part of the body. So a lot of people develop rheumatoid arthritis and have issues with their joints. So I have that. It causes me to have a lot of skin issues. So I get like little weird rashes and other skin issues. That's one of my biggest issues with it, but it can attack any of your organs as well. It's not uncommon to end up kind of collecting other autoimmune issues if you already have one. Sarah now has to consider some new restrictions when trekking. I asked Sarah what specific parts have changed for her now that she has to pay more attention to her body. The lupus hasn't caused as many issues with traveling. The pulmonary hypertension does. I have, um, altitude restrictions now. So there are certain places that I'm not supposed to go to because of altitude restrictions. So 
no ever hiking, uh, ever a space camp for me. It just, it would be terrible because it would just exasperate the breathing issues even more so. Travel is rough on the body, even if you aren't suffering from a chronic disease, but she's fighting back the body that is also fighting her. It was hard at first to deal with the restrictions. I'm kind of like a like can't stop, won't stop kind of person. So I, it's sort of, you know, don't tell me what I can and can't do. I'm going to do it. When we were in Zambia, I really wanted to go at Victoria Falls to this, this place called the Boiling Point. And it's, it was a long walk down a lot of stairs and kind of walking down thinking, hmm, at some point, I'm going to have to walk up these stairs again, but it'll be fine. And so we went down, we saw it, it was great. And then we started walking up the stairs and, and it was rough. It was a rough time going back up. I had to stop constantly because I kept not being able to breathe and it's a little bit alarming in the moment when you're kind of walking and not being able to breathe, but stop. Like I can stop. I know that if I stop, I'll catch my breath again. It's probably more embarrassing than anything else because it's sort of, I guess from the outside, it looks like you're sort of having an asthma attack, but you know, you're walking up the stairs and people are passing this girl who's just panting and out of breath. And I just think they're thinking, man, that girl like needs to exercise or something. She's so out of shape. And I just want to have a t-shirt or something that says, I have pulmonary hypertension and it's why I can't breathe. So in those sense, sometimes that's been a little harder to deal with. I've, it's only been about two years since I've been diagnosed. So I'm still kind of learning to cope with all the different changes, especially when we travel, because that's usually when it affects me the most. Travel is a very special occurrence. And I wondered how, with all these new restrictions, how it's adjusted her perception of traveling. For me, it's kind of fitting everything in that I can now while I can still do it, but also looking at the future and saying, all right, so when I can't do this anymore, what are the things I can do? So it will get worse over time. I would say it's more of just trying harder to check things off the bucket list. Like we have to, you know, go and get, I have to get all these things in before maybe I can't do certain things anymore. So I kind of, with travel, it's sort of almost looking long-term too. When I first got diagnosed, they actually made me go for a really bizarre test that I did um, to to make sure I could fly because they weren't sure if I could fly or not, depending on how bad it was, because that has to do with the altitude and everything. Fortunately, I went and did the test and I could still fly, but there might be a time in the future when I can't. And I'm always, I'm such a planner. I just, I, I, I enjoy planning things. So it's so funny because already ahead of time, I'm like, well, it's fine. So when I can't fly anymore, we'll, we'll get an RV and we could like RV across the country and we'll go to national parks and do all these things. So maybe I just have so much more passion for everywhere we go while we're there. I just feel grateful, even more so now that I can just do these things. And I'm really, everywhere we go, it's just, everyone will laugh because they're always like, well, where, you know, where's the best place you've been? And I'm always thinking everywhere, whatever, whatever place I'm in, in the moment, it's, this is the best place to be ever. So I would just say, feeling passionate and just so grateful for every second, wherever we are. When we were in Alaska, we went kayaking in just these beautiful bays that no one else was in. It was just our group that was there and just like just drinking every second of it in and thinking, I don't know if I'll ever be back here again. So I just want to appreciate every place that we're at. Focusing more on what you can do and not spending too, t- too much time stressing on the stuff that you can't do. There, I'm definitely limited as far as hiking, but I can still kayak. Kayaking's fine. I have no trouble with that. So try going to a place where I know, okay, I can do tons of kayaking here and it would be super cool. And that's something I can do. So like, let's make the most of doing that. 
I love Sarah's enthusiasm and commitment to keep going. But once you recognize the limitations or harm that your body is in, you never know what's gonna set you off. Once I left my homeland, one that's hostile to women's bodies, I realized it was exactly what I needed to start my healing process. After college, my friend Heather and I wanted to trek around Europe because, you know, we're American cliches. We decided that we would also explore Turkey together. We planned a week out in Istanbul and had a couch surfer set up for the whole time. And once we landed, we got into the metro to get to our couch surfer's place on the outskirts of old Constantinople. When we resurfaced and got off the metro, we were damned with heat. The August sun and high humidity had us sweating like we had just done an Ironman race. This is what hell feels like, I thought. We walked a slow 15 minutes to our couch surfer's place with our bodies trying to temper the weight of our bags and the heat from the Middle Eastern sun. We walked along a tall brick wall with green ivy and purple wisteria scaling over the top. At a distance, I saw another blonde girl walking alone with a backpack and a long blue sarong headed in the same direction as us. I had this gut instinct that she was somehow going to be part of our story. Once we arrived at our couch surfer's place, the blonde girl had just put down her bags. Apparently, our couch surfer had booked multiple people for the week and introduced us to Kate. She was a bit taller than me, straight blonde hair down to her shoulders, and in my eyes, a bit on the heavier side. Her belly pushed out against her blue sarong. And it, I hate, I'm gonna, all right, it made me a bit uncomfortable. At the time, there was something about being in the presence of women who have, quote, let themselves go that made me squirm. It makes me want to eat less. I'm sorry, folks. I'm not the hero of this story, but these are true thoughts that I had. But once we started chatting, we got to see how wonderful Kat was. She's funny and honest and from New York as well. We actually went to college around the corner from each other in Westchester. Our host orders Turkish pizza, which is a thin pita bread with crumbled spicy meat and, um, no cheese. It's also rolled and eaten like a burrito instead of a slice. How this is considered pizza, I don't understand. I slowly picked at the pizza and tried not to eat too much. The heat was suppressing my appetite, which gave me a distorted relief. My anxiety started to percolate by Kat's presence. I would watch her eat unabashed until she was full. How could she even? Doesn't she know she's just going to get bigger? But I didn't realize that I had apparently crammed my body image issues into my carry-on, and Kat was going to help me unpack them. When we have pre-existing issues, especially mental ones, we never know where they will turn up when we're out of our comfort zone. Nina from Find Your Shine podcast knows this firsthand. See, Nina's always been anxious. But she didn't think anything was wrong with her, just that her brain worked faster than others. And anxiety has a way of latching itself onto different areas of our life, like a parasite lurking in our bodies, not trying to kill us, but slowly draining our energy and making it harder to live. Yeah, so I'm very sensitive. Like my entire body is sensitive. Even when I'm not traveling, I have to, yeah, I have to concentrate on like my routine and what I'm eating. And it's a good and a bad thing. So I was in a touring choir when I was little. Like I think we started touring in middle school. So seventh and eighth grade. So we would start like every other year we would go abroad. We would go somewhere, usually Europe. We went to China once. And then we would travel like domestically on the off year. So I started off with that and I did not have travel anxiety at all during that period of my life until I got stuck in an elevator in Italy and I think that's where it all started. Yeah, so I was in eighth grade and we were in this hotel in Italy, very tiny elevator, and there were like 10, maybe eight of us, eight, eight or 10 of us that packed ourselves into this elevator. One of the kids, and at this time I'm telling you, I was not 
an anxious soul at all. Like no, no claustrophobia in my life. I didn't care about any of that. One of the kids was like jumping up and down, just being the worst. And he, he like pulled the door open before the elevator had like locked up. So we were being like idiot kids in the elevator. And so it just locked and the door was open, like this crack, so you could see out, but it just wouldn't open. So we were in the elevator probably for 45 minutes, I think, 45 minutes to an hour. If I remember correctly, it was like one of the glass ones too, which probably was better for us because we could like see the people next to us. But we just had to chill in there and wait and nobody spoke the language. So then because we were on a choir tour, like the parents were coming and they were all like standing outside the elevator. We just had to wait until somebody finally let us out, if yeah. I remember correctly. But all I know is that there were like eight to 10 middle school children in this elevator and we were very packed in. Like we didn't have a lot of room. And I was trying to be the strong one. I was like, guys, it's fine. Because at this time, you know, like I didn't have anxiety. So I was like, it's fine. We're in an elevator. It's totally cool. And kids were crying and it was just a mess. But finally, and then I remember towards the end of it, like once we got to probably like minute 40, I was like, get me the F out of here. Like I need out of this elevator. What is happening? Why are we still in it? Uh, and then we got out and I don't remember how I reacted. I think I was definitely crying though. It was also like 14. So. But after we had gotten out, I realized, like, every time – have you been to Italy? Or I'm sure this is, like, anywhere in Europe. But the bathrooms are really small and, like, compact, and there's no openings in them. So I found myself starting to get super anxious about, like, bathroom stalls. Like, the, anything that was totally closed in, like an elevator. But, yeah, then, then it started to transfer to other small spaces. Nina realizes her anxiety is something that may never go away, but she's taken the time to get to know her body and her mental health needs in order to have as seamless of a trip as possible. But then as an adult, I recently just started traveling more again because I quit my full-time job, so I have the time to do it. I'm telling you, though, you can ask my husband, the elevator fear is, is so bad. It's even worse now. I'm trying to get over it. It's like a thing after that one time. And it's hard because when you travel, you can't control if you're going to have to go into an elevator or not. Or, you know, if bathroom stalls are small. Also, airplanes, they're closed in too. So it started a transfer to other things. And I have to really work on like, being like, okay, this is a fear that's sort of embedded, but it's just an emotion. And it's not real. It's not reality. So there's that. And then talking myself into like, counteracting the negative thought. That's something that I have to work on a lot. So, okay, yeah, you could get stuck in here, but let's talk about what's fact. Are you actually going to get stuck in here? What are all the positive things that are going to happen after you get out of this elevator? Not the one small chance that something terrible is going to happen. So when I'm on, like, I'll just use my example when I was flying home from Texas. No, flying to Texas. I hadn't been in a plane um, in a while, actually. So I was flying there, and they closed the door, and I felt that immediate, like, I'm trapped feeling. I was like, shit, I'm trapped. You know, I can't get out. Now I'm going to be in this plane for three hours. And if something happens, I'm not going to, they can't stop the plane for me. Like, this is exactly what my brain does. And then I look and I'm like, okay, so there's all of this space in the plane. Nina. So you have, look at the plane. So I looked around and then I thought, if you are going to panic, like if it is going to happen, you have all this space in the plane. You could lay down and people might think you're crazy, but that still doesn't mean you're dying. You know, like you'll be fine. And then I was like, and Cody is next to you. So he can like squeeze your hand if it's really that bad. And if he wasn't next to me, maybe a kind stranger could have done that for me. And then instead of like letting those thoughts run, because that's very easy to do, especially when you're afraid. I took a moment I put my hands on my knees. I closed my eyes. I took some deep breaths. And then I started to think, like, I'm very um, spiritual when it comes to, like, the universal sense. So then I started to think, like, you know what? Whatever's going to happen is going to happen anyway. And the odds of me panicking on this plane aren't very high. You know, like, it could happen. It could not. There also is that chance that everything's going to be fine. And I started just to believe and trust. So these are things, like, I'm switching my emotion. I'm switching my thoughts, which are then switching the reaction of my body. So my body starts to relax. I start to untense myself. And then I put on a podcast. So I put that in and I listen to it. And I'm telling you, it's like a switch for me. 
And then all of a sudden I feel very connected and I'll open the window and I'll look out and I'll see the clouds and the sky. And yeah. And I honestly was fine after that. And then I got off the plane and you know, the first thing I thought of was like, okay, I need to eat something good. <laughs> like I need to put something good into my body. But yeah, that's sort of the, the transition I go through. Because there are things that I think I have under control, like under wraps. And I'm like, girl, you have a handle on this anxiety. And then I go somewhere and I'm out of my element. My routine's broken. I have to eat things I'm normally not eating. Um, you know, my body's primed. Like my adrenaline, my cortisol are raised because I'm on a plane and I don't particularly love planes. And so what happens is then I realize all of these things that seem to be at bay when I'm at home and cozy come out when I'm traveling. I think that travel is a big learning experience, but it could be different for other people. Like some people feel like they have to leave where they're at and go somewhere else to shake it up and that that helps them. Um, but in my experience, yeah, travel sort of brings up what I need to work on. Being away from home can actually help us apply our tools the most. Nina realized that anxiety isn't an issue that only pops up when she's overseas. These worries plague most of us at different levels of our life. Mental stability is a daily practice, no matter what country you're in. It's not just about travel. Like, it's more about getting in tune with yourself. So it's like sometimes people are thinking, if I just quit this job, things are going to get better. If I just get a boyfriend or girlfriend, things are going to get better. If I just do this, if I just do that, once I get this house, once I get that, once I travel, it's never any of that. Because as soon as you get to where you think you want to be, the feelings are still there. Like the deeper rooted core beliefs and things that you need to heal, they're still not healed. And so when you take yourself out of your comfort zone and travel, or maybe you buy the house, buy the car, whatever it is, then you have a choice to say, okay, what am I going to do with these feelings that are still here? And I think a lot of times we then start blaming ourselves. We think something's wrong with ourselves. Nothing's wrong with you. There's just things that need to be addressed and to be healed and it will happen. And I just want to make a point that if you are one of those people that you maybe are at the beginning of your journey, when it comes to this, it can seem very overwhelming to say, okay, well, I'm just going to love myself now. Like I'm just going to find my purpose now and it's all going to be okay because you, you might not be there yet. And we, we all are at energetic levels. And I think that's very important to remember. So if you're at like a lower energetic level right now, that's not good or bad. You can't just bounce up to the highest energetic level and be like, I'm at self-love, right? You have to like take these baby steps and it's more about experimenting with things that, give you that feeling of self-love or give you that feeling of happiness and lightness. So what does that mean for you? Does that mean like you go out and you try skateboarding? I don't know where that came from, but like you try little things that make you feel good and you start doing things that you really feel like lit up by and in your element. And then you remember that feeling and you try and cultivate that feeling more often. And once you finally sort of understand what it feels like to have like a purpose or whatever you want to call it, then you can use that feeling in times of like when you're in a lower energy again. Does that make sense? I just oh, think yeah. people are like, well, I get it in theory, but I don't know how to get to that yet. And it's all about just like taking the babyest, smallest steps to cultivate that feeling. And so people that struggle with anxiety, it's very easy to blame your body and say, this is out of my control. Things are not working correctly in my body. You know, it's out of balance. My levels are elevated. I can't control this. Well, the fact of the matter is, yes, it's making it harder, but you have to remember that there is that two-way street, the communication between your body and your brain and your brain and your body. And you can calm what's happening in your body by changing your thoughts. But you have to work hard to do it. You really do. And it's also a habit. And in that habit becomes more normal the more you practice it. So you can't just say all of a sudden, I'm going to meditate my hangry away. Like you probably have been working on that in like stages for a while. And then it worked because you were changing those habits. But you have to keep doing it over and over again. You have to keep choosing to change the thoughts. And then your body will start to react to those thought changes. And that's also separating your emotion from self. That's exactly what you were doing. It's like this is... We, we are so tied to thinking our emotions and our thoughts are who we are. They're not who you are at all. Like, 
not even close to who you are. So what would you say to your friend if they were dealing with this? You would say like, don't think about yourself this way. You're these things, you're this, you're capable, you're that, that, that. And we have to do that with ourselves. Why don't we do that with ourselves? You know, that's kind of the question. Like, why don't right. we? But it's because we really have to work on it. I know it's like a super buzzword, but we really do have to work on cultivating self-love and self-worth and purpose. And once we do the hard work to find like our self-love, our self-worth, our purpose, then it's easier to separate yourself and talk to yourself the way you would talk to a friend. Healing yourself is a gradual exercise and doesn't happen overnight. Part of it is letting go of your routine and seeing what you're dependent on. Heather, Kat, and I woke up the next morning with the sun and a call to prayer blasting through the windows. I unstuck myself from the sheets and went to the bathroom to take the coldest shower possible. When I stepped out, I didn't know if I was still wet or had already started sweating. I put on a tight blue dress and began drawing eyeliner onto my lids and noticed that it was harder to apply on my moist skin. Both Kat and Heather wear loose dresses and don't put on any makeup. They wait for me to get ready. The three of us then explore the city on our first day, and I am so uncomfortable. Istanbul in August might not have been the best choice, and the men were relentless, constantly shouting at us for dates or asking us to come into their restaurants. But as annoying as it was, I found it to be reassuring of my attractiveness, even if I had no interest in pursuing them. But as the day wore on, I watched as my makeup melted off my face and the sweat soaked up into my clothes. Kat was someone who Heather and I felt such an immediate intimacy with. Maybe because we were all from the same area or Westerners abroad. And I loved her honesty as we strolled through the streets. I'm not sure how we got on the topic of weight, but somehow we did. Kat said, I've been so many sizes in my life. Right now I'm a little heavier than I used to be, and in high school I was too thin. I think it's good to see your body in different sizes. Maybe when I go back I'll lose weight. Maybe I'll get a little plumper. But I like seeing how elastic my body is. Her acceptance was baffling to me. When she said she had been skinnier in high school, my first thought was, how do I get there? How did you do it, and how can I do it? I brushed past the whole body positivity thing, but it was probably the first time in my life that I had heard a woman say something accepting about her body, if not nice, and something snapped. The next morning, I rolled out of bed, took the coldest shower, put on a loose-fitting dress, and didn't even bother to wear a bra. What was the point of that? They would just be swimming in pools of sweat, and I stepped out into the world without any makeup on. And you know what? The men on the street still shouted at us, still asked for dates. I know this is fucked up, but I felt like a goddess in Turkey. I understand the immense sexism here, but it, but I felt very flattered still. Also a little boggled because wait, I didn't have to wear all the makeup or even have the flattest belly for men to still find me attractive. This was a new strength I could exercise. But I did slowly come around to becoming a little bit more okay with not wearing makeup. I realized that I was using makeup and attractive clothes as a crutch. That it was only because of these items I could feel good about myself in the world. We all have people or objects that we use for support to get around. Some of us need it more than others. Ed Rex, a travel blogger, has had to be reliant on others through most of his life. See, Ed is deaf. He was diagnosed when he was five and uses a colloquial implant and a hearing aid. Having extra assistance from his family was always inevitable. I do remember my first sounds, um, which I heard with my audiologist turning it on and then hearing my mum's voice for the first time. Um, and I was so perplexed by it. And I remember walking down the hospital corridor, just getting really confused by all the noises that came about, like the rattling of a hospital cart, etc. Because it's so quiet as well, 
Uh, but when I got outside, which is the hospital is outside a main road, and um, so all like the sounds of the cars, the beeps, and everything, I do remember like crying out in terror. And so my mum had to like take out my hearing aids until we got back home. And I felt really shy. I couldn't say boo to a goose. And when I tried to do things for myself, it was always a failure. So I kind of went into myself quite a lot and did a lot of reliance of other people, particularly my parents, family, teachers, etc. But travel was something that I was always interested in. Although Ed felt reliant on his parents and family members for help, he also loved the stories they brought back from abroad. And I was talking to my family members who've been traveling. So my father and my mother used to go to South Africa, uh, Kenya, Africa, um, climbing mountains in Europe, etc. So I kind of really wanted to be like them. Ed wanted to go abroad after high school, but he felt that he needed someone to come with him. But no one would come with him. Since he was so reliant on those at home, how could he possibly travel the world alone? And I thought maybe I should go have a gap year and go traveling. I really, really, really tried to find people to go traveling with me because I didn't feel that I could go traveling by myself. And I thought, wow, I'm not going to survive on my own. But I couldn't find anyone at all to go traveling with me. His dreams of travel kept getting pushed back year after year. Then during college, there was a group trip to Uganda with a charity organization. Finally, he thought this would be a chance to evaluate his ability to travel. So, and that was such a great experience for me. But still, I wasn't too confident of traveling by myself because I was with a group. And I did feel like I was a bit dependent on them, but I learned a lot about myself and how I can cope with different situations. Like all of us returning from abroad, he came back with the travel bug. No, not Ebola. (laughs) If he could survive Uganda, he surely could do a trip around Europe. Maybe make it more of a challenge and try to thumb his way around. Came back and then we did a hitchhike as well to another country. That was absolutely brilliant. Um, so, you, you know, it really builds your confidence in trying to ask people, you know, just get on a car or a truck. Then Ed settled down for the next three years. Maybe now he had all that traveling out of his system. But the travel bug is an infectious disease. It can lie dormant in your body for years. And then one night you wake up out of breath, reaching for your computer and buy the next ticket to Argentina, Australia, anywhere. But after about three years, I was really bored and I said, look, I really, really, really want to go traveling. Let's do a backpacker travel. So I started reading everyone's uh, travel blogs, getting inspired. And I've also loved writing as well, like writing diaries and recording journeys, etc. So I thought building a travel blog like six months before I was due to go was best. Um, and then I bought my tickets. There's no going back. I was like really scared um, of what we were about to do. And I jumped on the plane in London and flew to Thailand. But this time, it would be alone. Completely alone. And farther than he had ever been before. Those who he had relied on his whole life started to question his abilities, poisoning his confidence. Because I could see it on their faces, like, hmm, I'm not too sure. Yes, let's see. Some some things where you're never going to make it as you think you're going to be, or flying too high, and you've got to realise that you have a disability and you need to look after yourself. And I said, well, I do have a disability and I do look after myself, so what's the problem? Um, and also the word no. I hate that word. If, someone, if I say this is what I'm going to do, and somebody goes, say, no, you're not going to do it, you're not going to be able to do it. Well, damn right, I am going to show you that I am able to do it. And everyone before I went travelling said, you're never going to do it, you know, you're never going to find out what you need to get, you'll find yourself abandoned, you get into trouble, etc. And I was like, I need to prove everybody wrong. It was just kind of disheartening to see what your friends could think of you, which is some of them, 
but I do have also I have other friends who are very supportive and still to this day they still say like I can't believe you did it I knew you were going to do it but you did it anyway so I can't believe you did it so that's brilliant but it didn't matter what others said he tried to suck the venomous thoughts out of him as he got on the plane to Thailand just him and his implant ready to take on the world he knew it wouldn't be easy but he also knew he wouldn't be exempt from the typical travel issues that all bodies go through. I got off the plane in Bangkok in Thailand. I walked out and I thought, yes, I know I can do this. Uh, I'm on my own, but I know I can get to, first of all, get to the hotel. And But throughout the entire time, I was so focused on how my deafness could affect things. So basically, I packed my bag full of maintenance stuff. But I've completely forgot the absolute key thing that I need to do as a traveller, any traveller, was the directions from the airport to the hostel. I was like, oh my God, where am I going? Um, So from that moment on, um, yes, I was still a bit shy, but I was a bit like, you know, I'm I'm getting there, etc. But um, when... I realised I had no directions. Um, I couldn't get any money out um, until after past uh, security, etc. And I thought, right, I need the Wi-Fi, but my um, iPad and my iPhone ran out of battery because after a 10-hour, 13-hour flight. Um, so I thought, what am I going to do? So I went to a, a Starbucks that was in um, Bangkok Airport, and they saw this guy like on his computer. And I literally had to build the confidence up and say, excuse me, can I just um, borrow your computer for five minutes? I'm not going to run away with it. I just need to find out where I'm going. And he did. You know, it was great, fantastic. And I got him a cup of coffee to say thank you. But I just thought I kicked myself thinking, what the hell do you, you think you are doing, etc.? You need to know everything that you need to have with you. But it was great because I didn't have to, I didn't have the time to wander around going, oh, my God, I'm travelling, I'm now on my own, etc. I just immediately got straight into it and just trying to find a solution to a problem that I had. And that was great. Ed felt weirdly good that he had made this very typical mistake that all travellers make. But he also had tailored issues that other travellers don't have to worry about. On his second day travelling through Bangkok, he decided to go venture to the infamous Kosan Road, the epicentre of backpackers. Even if you have the worst aim, you can't throw a bottle without hitting a drunk Australian bagpacking their way through Southeast Asia. And the next day, I was walking along Karastan Road, which is the main backpacker street in Thailand, in Bangkok. And I felt somebody like tap on my shoulder. And as soon as I started to turn around, somebody like flicked upwards and my cochlear implant this bit here, flew off my ear, landed in the middle of the street, and it was like slow-mo, and I reached forward to grab it, but missed it, and I saw it on the ground, and then somebody came walking by and then crushed that implant with his left foot without realising. That person was really upset. Um, so as soon as I tried to like mend it, I couldn't do it. I thought, oh, no. I got back up, and I realised that um, in the process of me bending over to pick it up, somebody's um, pickpocketed me. And I was just so gutted and I felt so low and I thought, everyone's right, I can't make it on my own, etc. Um, so after having a few hours of drowning in sorrows, I thought, no, you're on, I'm on my own here, I need to figure out myself, etc. So I contacted uh, the manufacturer and said, look, you know, i this has happened to my cochlear implant, um, what can I do, etc. And they said, no, no worries, we'll just FedEx it over to you, a new replacement one over to you. So I just had to have wait a couple of days in Bangkok and get it, um, a new one put in, and that was great. And, you know, I cancelled my cards, got new cards, etc. There was no problem whatsoever, so um, I just thought to myself, you know what, what, or what, what's all that stress and fuss that I had to do? That wasn't even worth it. The solution was right there in front of you. All you have to do is just man up and uh, just do it. And it's great. Once he found his true strength, Ed has opened his senses to the rest of the world. From that point on, 
It was around seven years of travel. Although I heard what Kat was saying, it would still take me years to accept my body. But a new mindset was put into motion. Slowly, like tectonic plates gradually shifting, the cracking and morphing of my previous mindset gave space for new ideas about my body. I wondered why I couldn't love myself. Why was it normal to let these negative thoughts take over my mind like an invasive species? Why did I nurture them and let them strangle out the beautiful, kind thoughts? I really wanted to understand why self-love is not a natural state. I mean, humans are so self-serving. We're always calculating what's best for me. And self-love is definitely in our best interest. Then the more I thought about it, I started seeing how denying self-love is connected to systems of oppression. Self-love is a story, just as much as self-hate. And for centuries, groups of people have been told that they're not good, that they're weaker, inferior, dumber, unattractive, not worthy of love, which has kept them in their place for others to benefit and profit off of. The stories around female beauty are perpetuated in the culture we live in, and industries have figured out how to make bank off of it. They tell the stories that our lashes, our butt, our hair doesn't look good the way it is, and that we all need this product. I know this isn't a revolutionary idea, but it's immensely pervasive and still not much is being done to prevent it. I don't even want to think about how much I spend on beauty products a year. But how many industries would go bankrupt if women specifically woke up one day and decided to just love themselves, looked in the mirror and thought, I look great, I don't need anything. And what confirmed those thoughts was when some of the men I dated would tell me that they thought I looked great when I didn't wear makeup. My immediately thought was, oh, I'm dating a liar. Awesome. They had to be. Why would they say something like that? All of the makeup is to look good for men. But the more I traveled, the more I started to think about my body through a different lens, not just through beauty. I started seeing how strong it was, something that I had always taken for granted. See, I'm able-bodied, I've never broken anything or been through a debilitating injury or illness. I have a sound mind most days. I'm able to give my body pleasure and it can take pain. I have climbed mountains, swum far out into lakes, have walked on five continents, and bike around Brooklyn, which is possibly the most dangerous activity on this list. It's never inhibited me from experiencing exactly what I've wanted to do in that moment. I started to see the larger function of my body, its bigger purpose. But that larger picture is hard to see sometimes when we can't see over our own noses. We think that our problems are the only problems and that our lives are the hardest. That's how Fabi, a travel blogger, felt when she did a military training in Korea. Trigger warning, this story does mention suicide attempts. I have had mental health issues since my teenage years. However, you know, you're not like very educated in it and you don't really understand like what's going on until I was in the military, went to South Korea and you know, the culture shock, being away from family. It was just like a lot to take in. And I was like, okay, I need help. Like I need to figure out what's going on in my mind. And that's when I started, I started going to therapy and I discovered, you know, I, I got officially like diagnosed with severe anxiety, depression, and PTSD. Um, and then after that was that I was like, okay, so at least now I know what the problem is. It's a matter of taking care of it and figuring out how to, you know, deal with the situation. So, yeah. So because, because of the PTSD, they do like they overlap each other. Usually for me, anxiety, high anxiety levels can lead to an episode of depression where you just, you know, you want to not do anything, not see anybody in the world and just, you know, the times that they do overlap each other, it's, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) it's a lot to deal with. It wasn't until Fabi left home that she realized her internal issues couldn't be left there. I asked her, since she was diagnosed with an onslaught of issues at once, how it has affected her interest in travel. 
the moment I cut my travel bug was the moment that my depression, anxiety, and PTSD were at its worst. I actually went through a whole suicidal event where I tried to kill myself, ended up in the hospital, and that was in South Korea, actually. And after that happened, you know, I looked around at my life and I was like, I need to do something. So the more Fabi traveled, the more it triggered something larger than just her mental health issues. One of the biggest impacts was seeing other people's struggles. I went to Guatemala. It was one of the best experiences in my life. I wanted to have a unique experience that would help me, you know, open my mind. There was a company that does these trips to Guatemala, and they're all helping bring portable water to the poorest communities in Guatemala. And I was like, all right, this is it. So I bought a ticket. Actually, a week before I did, I got so much anxiety. I was like, I am going to a third world country with a a lot of strangers that, you know, and where am I going to be sleeping? Where? So my anxiety level the week before getting there was through the roof. Because you always get this like feeling of like, oh my God, what, I'm, what am I doing? What am I getting into? Once I got to Guatemala, actually, it was mind-blown. And it was mind-blown in a way of like, this is so different like even the airport once you walk out of the airport there's vendors and and people yelling and and uh taxis that would run you over if you don't pay attention it was it was very overwhelming so by about the third or fourth day we headed to the communities that we were gonna help out we had to ride in the back of trucks because the, the Guatemalans write like that. It's like 30 people on the back of a truck, and it's so much fun. I liked it. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. So we got in the back of the trucks, and we headed out to this community, and we're going, and you can see, like, the difference of, like, okay, there's alpha, all asphalt roads, and then dirt roads, and then it's just, it keeps on, it keep, like, you can see the decrease, you know, in qu- the quality of life. And once we got there, like, all the kids are barefoot and there's, like, five, ten hammocks in a living room, which is where an entire family sleeps. And it's a house of one bedroom that it's literally, and I am not exaggerating, built out of mud. Like, they get trees. And then you, you look at that and you realize, you're like, these people are happy, like you, you, you look at them and, and you realize they don't, they don't have all the stuff that we are blessed to have. They just enjoy life and seeing them light up the moment we walked in because they know you're there to help. And their faces, they, they receive you like if they've known you for your entire life, like all the kids come and give you hugs and, and you just feel all the love and, and, and that was one of the biggest, like, impacts, like, the way I see the world. So I actually had a moment. It was on the second day of volunteering where I told one of the leaders, I was like, I need to step out and take a moment. And I went on, the, like, the backside of the school, and I just sat down on the floor and cried for, like, 40 minutes because I just... I needed to let it out. And it wasn't like, it, it wasn't a cry of like, you know, my life is falling apart or a, a cry of like, I don't know what to do with my problems and, and, you know, the sort of things that you deal with when you, you are having those episodes. It was more of a cry of like, I wish I could do more. It was more of a cry of, you know, my life has just changed. And I was seeing it in front of my eyes. Like, you know, that moment where you, you get where you're like, this, this is it. 
this is where, you know, my life is shifting right now. And that's what I got. That's why I had this moment where my anxiety, and it, it wasn't, it was like a, it was weird because the, the previous episodes that I've had of anxiety and depression were always very like detrimental and very like, they made you feel very low. This one was one of like, oh my God, I did it. You know, I, I found the solution to my mental health issues sort of. And it's here, it's helping people, it's seeing this happiness, so. These mental health issues are never gone, but we can cage them, deny them food, hope they get weaker. I asked her what tools she uses to help her process and tame the mental monsters that prowl through her brain. Being present is actually one of my top, like, things. That is the, is the number, and every single post that I make in every single blog, I always say, don't forget to look up. I always say that. It helps you be present because you know that the reason you're going to that country is to experience that culture. So you get this feeling of like, I don't want to miss out. Fabi not only has tools, but motivators to keep her grounded on her toughest days. She calls it a bucket list, but it isn't what she has to do in life. More of a reminder as to why life is worth living. The majority of the people that I spoke with, they see the bucket list as like, these are things that I have to get done before I die. The way I see a bucket list is more like, these are all the things that I can experience throughout my life. And when I look back at it and I see all the things crossed off, I'm like, yes, I remember that. I did that. Like, it's amazing. And um, I've had like, I've also been asked if I'm disappointed, like, like, will I be disappointed if I look back and I didn't complete 20 of those items? Because my bucket list has like 200 items on it. Like, it's a lot. And I know I won't be able to complete it all. And my answer is always like, no, because it's not something that I must do. It's something that keeps me motivated. So a bucket list to me is, it's more of a guide, that whenever you're lost and you don't know how am I how am I gonna get back to this point where I want to live, you know? You look back and you're like, okay, let's try this. You know, let, let's do this one, number 70 something, or you know, you know, when you are depressed and you have a lot of anxiety, you don't feel like doing anything. You don't you just wanna lay on the couch and bench watch something or just just be there you know and it's like you need that you need life in you that's what the bucket list brings to me it brings life self-love is possibly one of the longest journeys we will ever take But I think that when most of us hear that word, we think about white people in dreadlocks with holes in their shirts, pontificating about the benefits of self-love as they sit in an eagle pose. We need to define it as something much more approachable. For me, traveling has helped me pave down that road much faster because I started seeing my body from a new angle of the sun and cultural understanding of beauty. And for me, Mexico was an about face. Mexico is easily one of the best culinary countries in the world, and that's because they eat. They're celebrated for their eating. In Latin America, curvaceous women are idolized. I do want to say that Mexico does have an issue with obesity and diabetes, but it was a culture that encouraged women to be curvy and not give a fuck. If I could find a way to bottle that confidence and put it in beautiful packaging, I would become a millionaire off of all of the white female insecurities in the States. So while I was there, I would go out dancing with some of my Latino friends, and the clubs are some of my favorite in the world. Rooms of people bouncing and jumping to Despacito and new Shakira songs. I felt like in New York, people aren't so much at clubs to dance as they are to look good and be seen versus actually enjoying being there. In Mexico, people are sweaty and are wearing tank tops, booty shorts, and having their fat jiggle every which way. So at one point, I headed to the bathroom. 
I'm standing in line and looking at these two very curvy Latina girls with their stomachs hanging over their jeans and proudly wearing crop tops. And all the men I was seeing were into it. To be fair, I did deal with an, an obscene amount of sexual harassment, but again, it was like low-key flattering. The men there would tell me all of these hacky pickup lines that Mexican men would use to say to women, like, I don't have enough teeth for all that meat, and I don't have enough brakes for all those curves. And I get that it's sexist, but at the same time, it was a form of body worship I wasn't used to. Men in the States would be like, oh, you're the biggest I've ever been with. Whereas here, there was no scale. It was liberating. I felt so beautiful being able to rock up to a street stand, down a torta, leave a tip and my guilt with the cook. I was able to enjoy mangoes and chocolate the way I couldn't in the States. I was learning how to love the curvature of my hips in ways I couldn't in my home country. See, I still struggle with it. I still think that my stomach can be flatter. I think about not eating dinner. And I get frustrated when the glue sticks my fingers to my eyes as I'm trying to apply lashes. But these voices have gotten quieter, and I try to ignore them more. It's a daily practice to rewrite the script that plays in my head. And I'm going to do some of it right now. It's really... Okay. Okay, this is so... This is so awkward. Okay, um... I'm fucking hot, Okay. My curves are amazing. My body is so healthy and strong. I worship it like a temple, meaning squats and chocolate. Okay, that's enough. Okay, that's enough. But there's such an incredible power within us when we begin to love ourselves for exactly who we are and that we're more than our physical bodies. You aren't your sickness, broken bones, chronic illnesses, or worry. You're so much more than that. And once you master yourself, You can master anything. On our next episode, we take all that we've seen and feel galvanized to make the world better. We will talk to travelers who knew that they couldn't spend another day not making the world a better place. From creating nonprofits, language learning systems, to building communities, we will hear stories about people who could no longer stand on the sidelines. Next time on Strangers Abroad.